Praise God. All right, let's go. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You know, in the 16th century, um, there was a lot of defining of the church, at least, by the, at least within the English Reformation. Um, there was a lot of defining of the church. There was Roman Catholic kind of a breakaway during that time and into more of a Protestant um, um, identity. And, and, and when that was happening, one of the things that they did during that time was that they came up with a criteria to know what a true church actually was. And they called that criteria the three marks of a true church. Number one, the church engages in the, in the pure preaching of the gospel. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. Number two, the church makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. The sacraments being baptism and Lord's Supper, the church makes a practice of administering those sacraments as Christ has instructed us to administer them. And then number three, the church practices church discipline for correcting faults. Those are the three marks. Preaching, sacraments, discipline. Now the mark that is particularly important for us on this morning is the third mark, the practicing of church discipline. And what's really interesting about that mark is that we are living in a generation, in a time, and in a culture that for the most part, many of us have never even heard of this third mark. A lot of people that go to church all the time and they say, well, I've never even heard of this idea of church discipline. But it is one of the three marks as defined during the early 16th century uh, with the English reformers as a mark of the true church. In a pursuit to fill our seats in a church and to keep the right people, quote unquote, you know, who bring some sort of benefit to our church. And so in a pursuit to keep those people in seats or to just get more people in seats, we often avoid this mark of a true church. But to be a disciple is to be one who is submitted to the process of discipline. Sometimes that discipline is formative. It's, it's shaping. And it, 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 so, so it may occur through instruction. It may, occur, it may occur through times like these when I'm preaching. Or it may occur through missional community time when we come together and we're teaching. But every once in a while when a member of the church loses the will to fight, that discipline becomes corrective. And that's what's happening in the Corinthian church in chapter 5. Verse 1, Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. In this chapter, Paul is turning his attention from his lengthy counsel about division to another very important matter that he has received word about. And that, ha and that has the same potential of destroying the church. And that is egregious, heinous sexual sin. But Paul has a particular sexual sin in mind as he is sharing what he has heard from the church. He says that it is a kind, in verse 1 again, a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man as his father's wife. A typical read of the scholars scholars take on this story is that this is probably a stepson sleeping with a stepmother. And many believe that Paul would have just stated it clearly if it was the boy's mother, but he makes it a point to say the father's wife. Either way, <laughs> right, say the good situation. 
Paul sees this as a terrible violation of God's law. It's a sexual sin for one, but it is a betrayal of trust for two. It is a uh, desecration not only of a marriage, but it is a desecration of a family. And it is present and it is ongoing. You can picture and imagine this kind of relationship where it's like, well, I love her and she loves me type of deal. And the church seems to be totally unconcerned about all of it. So Paul feels like there needs to be some course correction because this, this act that this man is given free, has been given free license to engage in is a clear violation of kingdom ethics and kingdom sexual ethics and kingdom family ethics. In fact, Leviticus chapter 18 tells us such. Verse 7, it says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. So this is kingdom ethics. This is, this is Bible 101. But, but Paul doesn't fix his attention on the fact that it is kingdom ethics. He makes an even more interesting point. He says even the pagans won't tolerate this. Paul is talking about the unbelievers, those that are unchurched, those that have never walked through the, the doors of the synagogue, or those that have never walked through the doors of the temple, or those that have never walked through the house church that might be planted. Paul says even they wouldn't tolerate this. You know, Caesar Augustus in around 16 and or 18 and 16 BC, they had laws that they cultivated and developed for all of Rome. And one of those laws that they cultivated, uh, cultivated or developed was in fact about this kind of arrangement or engagement. Sexual ethics that crossed into the lines of incestuous. And what happened there was they literally punished incestuous conduct by banning people to a remote island. And so Paul is clear here in, in, about his intent. There is no reason that the church should meet this level of unrepentant sin with a yawn and a wave while the rest of the world takes decisive action around, uh, takes decisive action on it. So what does Paul call for? Verse 2. Verse 2, he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Let him be removed from among you. And the question that we have to ask is, why would, why would we do such a thing? Why would we do such a thing? What does this accomplish? What does it accomplish to go as far as having someone removed from this assembly, this church? Believe it or not, it sends a message of love. It sends a message of love. Church discipline, when done right, sends a message of love. Even if that message is not necessarily received, it sends a message of love. But how does it do that? And that's what I want to focus on for the next couple of minutes. How does it send a message of love? First, church discipline displays love. Because it roots out arrogance. It displays love by rooting out arrogance. Paul's immediate response to the, to the news that 
The Corinthian church has done nothing to address this heinous sexual relationship between this man and his father's wife is found in verse 2. What does Paul say? Look at verse 2, the first half. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And you are arrogant, prideful. This, this, this arrogance can be looked at one of two ways, arrogance in spite of this situation or arrogance because of this situation. If we think about it as arrogance in spite of this situation, then what we're talking about is that, as we've been discussing for the last several weeks, the Corinthian church was severely divided because of their pride and their arrogance that was flowing out of the church and through the church at the time of Paul's letter. Attitudes that were so messed up that they were more worried about which person they were following rather than the God that they were following. So by saying, and you are arrogant in verse 2, he could be saying that even in spite of this crazy sin running rampant through your church untouched, you still have the gall to walk around with your chest poked out like your big stuff. Paul may have their pride in spite of this situation in mind, but I believe ultimately that he's speaking about arrogance, not in spite of, but arrogance because of, because of this particular situation. And my reasoning for that lands in verse 6. Look at verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You're boasting. Your boasting is not good. What are they boasting in? They're boasting in the idea that, hey, we're so free as a church or, or we're so loving as a church or we're so merciful as a church. And that's why we're giving license to this man to sleep with his father's wife and nobody's doing anything about it or saying anything about it or addressing it or calling him to account. You see, their unwillingness to confront this brother in his sin is probably being used as a mark of their maturity. Pride disguised as freedom. Pride disguised as love. Pride disguised as mercy. Look at how free we are in Christ. Look at how merciful we are in Jesus. Look at how loving we are in the Messiah. This is the church who has a willful, unrepentant sinner tearing through the church and does nothing but insult anyone who asks for accountability. They respond with platitudes like, well, nobody's perfect, you know. We're not legalists. Everybody makes mistakes. Or our favorite, as we talked about, you know, just recently, only God can judge, right? It's disguised as freedom. It's disguised as love. It's disguised as mercy. All the while, the leaven of bad conduct and the leaven of bad morals is leavening the whole lump of the church, dividing it and destroying it. Their tolerance of this ongoing violation of the marital covenant and their tolerance of a profaning of the family is a complete twisting of Christian mercy. It's turning Christian freedom on its head. It's turning Christian love upside down. And yet the Corinthians don't appear to be bothered or moved by this. There's a kind of Christianized talk that presents itself as freedom but ultimately leads to bondage in sin rather than true freedom in Christ. 
There's a kind of Christian talk that, that presents itself as merciful, but it's absent of mercy because it robs those caught in sin of the opportunity to grow and mature out of their sin. Does that make sense? There's this kind of Christianized talk that presents itself as loving, but is absent of love because we all know that love requires that wrongs be addressed. If your best friend is a bully, if your homie is a jerk, the most loving thing you can do for them is to, or most unloving thing you can do for them rather, is to continue to allow them to bully and be a jerk without ever challenging them and saying anything to them. You can call that loving, you can call that merciful, but it's neither. Do you understand that? It is not quite clear why they've given him a pass. We don't know that. The scripture doesn't tell us. Some scholars have ideas and suspicions. They say maybe given the tendency of Corinthians to kind of elevate status, maybe he has some status. Maybe there's some cultural status, some cultural power, some popularity that this person has, some wealth that they have, something that they can do for the church that keeps them not saying anything about rank sin in front of them. Does that make sense? I know nothing like that has ever happened in the history of the, uh, of the church, though, so it probably couldn't be that, right? You know, oftentimes we're willing to disregard terrible sins. When a person with standing in the community or power in the community or wealth in the community is the source of that particular sin. Gets to the point where we literally stop preaching about it. I've, I've literally dealt with situations where there have been people in the church in the midst of rank sin. And preachers have stopped preaching about the sin because they know that that person is in the middle of the sin. And that person they don't want to lose. But one thing for sure as we read this, Paul is not impressed. And so Paul dives deeply into this. While the church celebrates their passiveness and their leniency with this gentleman and letting this sin go untouched and undealt with, Paul says that they should be mourning that such a thing has happened in their midst. They should be heartbroken. Paul continues in verse 3 with this kind of false humility basher. He says, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. You guys are celebrating and patting yourselves on the back. I've already said this man is judged. There is a type of judgment that is absolutely necessary for the body of Christ. I know you hear the text and Judge not lest you be judged, but you have to read a little deeper into that text. There's a type of judgment that is not suitable for us as saints. But there is a way to judge with right judgment. Paul is calling for that in this text. He says, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. You know, we see that maybe there's another reason here that Paul seems to be pretty amped up about this. It's, not, it's of course, the, egregious of the uh, egregiousness of the sin, but, but even in verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. In other words, he said, I've already talked to y'all about this. And now we have this situation where we have an even more egregious sin happening in our camp. 
No one is doing anything about addressing it. But, but the gloating instead of the grieving sticks out to me. This word here for grieving that Paul uses is actually a word that's used for mourning that comes after someone dies. It's as if Paul is saying to the church, this ongoing sinful conduct should not be met with a cavalier smirk and a wink. But this ongoing sinful conduct should have the kind of weight on the life of a church as if someone was dying in the church. Here's the question. Why do we so rarely feel that kind of weight in the midst of unrepentant sin? Why do, we, why do we rarely feel that kind of weight? Well, one reason is because our lives are so attached to a culture that is littered with sin. And we are constantly being bombarded by Images and words and thoughts of sin daily from that culture that are shaping us and that are, and that are molding us and that are dulling us to sin's impact and seriousness. That's one reason. I mean, you think about it. When we are devoting two to three hours of our lives a week to grow in Jesus, but then we devote the other 110 waking hours of our week being shaped and formed and conformed by this world? What other choice do you have but to have your senses dulled to the nature of sin? You see, the harm of sin will not be big to you until the beauty of Jesus is. The harm of sin will not be big to you until the beauty of Jesus is big to you. And we grow deeper in our appreciation of the beauty of Jesus only when we are spending time with Jesus. Do you grieve over unrepentant sin of your Christian brothers and sisters? Do you grieve over your own sin that you are struggling with even to this day and warring and fighting with but not always successfully? If you are in the midst of a sin pattern, whether that's a gossip pattern or a lying pattern or a cheating pattern or a greed pattern or a selfishness pattern or a lust pattern, if you are in the midst of a sin pattern, a regular sin pattern, and there is an absence of grief, it probably reflects a need to be formed more in the image and likeness of Jesus and not in the image and likeness of this world. It probably is indicating that you need to spend more time with Jesus. That you need to spend more time with Jesus in prayer. That you need to spend more time with Jesus in scripture. That you need to spend more time with Jesus in service. That you need to spend more time with Jesus in the community of your church. Discipline done well is a humble reflection of a people who are growing in Jesus. They understand the weight of it, they weep over it because they are growing with Jesus and they see the devastation that sin does in terms of driving wedges in our, in our ability to connect with God. It doesn't drive a wedge in your eternal relationship with God, but make no mistake about it, the Bible tells you to grieve, do not grieve the Holy Spirit for a reason. Does that make sense? 
unrepentant sin is doing something with us. And the more time we spend with Jesus, the more that begins to land on us. Church discipline is also loving because it is a command. It is commanded by our Lord Jesus. Verse 4 and 5, he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh or the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. When discipline is done right, it is done in the presence of Jesus with the power of Jesus. We know this to be true because Christ clearly commands the church to discipline his members that are locked in a pattern of unrepentant, destructive sin. Matthew 18, the Bible tells us, verse 15 through 20, if a brother sins against you, then go and tell, it, go and tell him his fault between you and him. And, and if he listens, then you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, then you go bring more. And then you guys have a counseling session. And if he still doesn't listen, then you go and you tell it before the church. But that was Jesus talking. In other words, Jesus is for discipline. So to not perform discipline is to undermine the authority of Jesus himself and to truly miss out on what it means to love Jesus. We also know that when discipline is done right, it is done in the presence of Jesus with the power of Jesus because Jesus defines love with the call and the command to obedience. John chapter 14, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will do what? Keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. In other words, part of loving Jesus is living a disciplined life and pursuing discipline in Christ. John chapter 15, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my commandments, my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. So the irony is that while many may choose not to execute discipline because of our love for God, quote unquote, according to John 14, if we love God, that pushes us towards discipline. Does that make sense? It doesn't push us away from discipline. It pushes us towards discipline. When discipline is done right, it is done in the presence of Jesus with the power of Jesus. Church discipline is also loving because it preserves the whole church. It preserves the whole church. When we look towards verses 5 through 8 of this text, 1 Corinthians 5, we see that God is using discipline for this particular reason, to preserve and protect the church. Here's what's interesting, though. The preservation that he is aiming for is for both the transgressor and for those who have the ability to be negatively impacted or influenced by the transgressor. It's very important, I hope you see that. That this discipline, this preservation is for the transgressor. It's not just for those that he's harmed, but it's for him as well. First, Paul turns his attention towards the transgressor. And he says, verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan 
for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You know, church discipline is a reflection of our love for God. But church discipline is absolutely one of the greatest reflections of our love for our brothers and sisters because discipline is an action that is done to preserve the soul. You may ask yourself, well, I don't see that preacher. How is that? Well, I'm sure your kids say the same thing about you when you discipline them. I don't see the good in this. What are we doing? Punishment for what? Whippings? <laughs> Hold on. How is this going to serve me? You see, but, but, but none of us look at a child whose parents carefully but deliberately discipline their child for disobedience. None of us look at that parent or look at that child and say, man, I feel sorry for you. We say, no, man, thankfully that child has a, has a mother or a father who exercises discipline. Does that make sense? And none of us look at a parent of a child, or none of us look at a child and see a, uh, see a child running wild and loose with no care in the world and no discipline whatsoever, and then looks at that parent and says, y'all are doing a great job. Are you tracking with that? We, we all crave discipline. We see it and we know and we recognize the need for it. Hebrews chapter 12 testifies to us about it. The Bible says in chapter 12 of Hebrews verse 6, the Lord disciplines the ones who he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons when he does what? When he disciplines. The Lord uses a number of ways to discipline his children. He disciplines his children or disciplines us through the Holy Spirit, working in the preaching and the studying of his word. That is, again, formative discipline. He disciplines us firmly through the hands of suffering and, and through pain. And as we see here in chapter 5, he disciplines us through the hands of the church. And to what purpose? To what end? For the purpose of preserving the soul and conforming that soul into the image and likeness of Christ. So to not execute discipline against an unrepentant sinning member in the church is to not love that member as Christ does. Because not only does Christ command that we exercise discipline, but he also disciplines his own with, 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 through other means. That's love, saints. It's tough love, but it is love nonetheless. You know, most of the time later on, what happens when a, when a child has a loving parent who is giving right and loving and healthy discipline? What typically happens in the end? Several years down the road, that child with gratefulness says, man, I really appreciate that mom. I really appreciate that dad. Didn't get it then, didn't understand it then but I really appreciate that and I appreciate you for doing it. Paul instructs the church to deliver this man to Satan. No one knows for sure what Paul is saying here, but I think we can reasonably assume that what Paul is saying here and is requesting here is something that's not good at all. But what are we to take from this? Well, 
first of all, this man is being removed from the care of the church, so we know that he is automatically going back into the backyard of Satan, Satan's playground, so to speak. No longer in the fellowship of the church because of his unrepentant state. He refuses to turn. But second, we are to assume that the sin to the professing saint can create some pain. This saint, that, that, that this sin that he is indulging in can be painful for him. And so Paul is saying, turn him loose. He doesn't want to turn from it. Turn him loose so he has an opportunity to absorb the pain. Does that make sense? Paul is saying, don't try to shield him from the pain if he keeps asking for that pain. If he wants to do that, let him do that. Saints of God, sin is painful. Our decisions to turn and remain and to refuse to turn back can be painful. And so Paul is saying here, if he wants to stay and continue down that line without repentance, then let him. Because he needs to feel that pain. Why? For the destruction of his flesh in order that he may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul is not saying, man, I don't care about that dude, whatever. Let him do whatever. That's not, that's not Paul's intent. Paul is saying, I want to see him turn back. So let him feel the pain of his sin in order that he might turn back and come back home. You remember the prodigal son as he was out and about and took his, took his father's wealth and riches that he said, hey, yeah, this, is, this is my inheritance. You owe me, go and give it to me so I can go do what I want to do with it. And then he goes and he splurges and spends it. And then he comes back. I mean, then he's what? He's sitting in, 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 a, in a, a, mess of, a, a mess that's made for pigs. And he says, the Bible says he came to his senses in the midst of the pain. He said, I'm supposed to be back in my father's house. Paul is giving us a similar example here. Saying, allow them to feel the pain so that they turn back to Christ. Good discipline is an act of love for the transgressor in the same way that it is an act of love for our children when we discipline them. In other words, we're giving them a momentary, momentary suffering with the hopes that that momentary suffering is going to draw their hearts back. However, as I mentioned, it's not just, it's not just good and preserving for the transgressor, but it is good and preserving for the church. Look at verse five and, uh, 6 and 7. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. There's a couple of things here I want to draw your attention to real quickly. Number one, to resist to exercise good and healthy discipline when necessary is to leave the entire church at risk. It could be the influence of the transgressor. Unrepentant adultery could give the church the impression that it's okay. Unrepentant scheming and unrepentant greed could give the church the impression that scheming and greediness is okay. 
We can say a thing is, we can all say that a thing is dangerous, and we can all say that a thing is serious, but if we have no action to emphasize the danger, our words will always have trouble being heard over the silence of our actions. So discipline is an effort to protect the souls of the flock from the influence of the transgressor. However, in certain instances, saints, discipline is also an effort to protect the souls of the flock from the harm of the transgressor. Not just the influence sometimes, but the actual harm of the transgressor. Uh, transgressor. I've mentioned this before, but I want to take a moment and mention it again. Sexual abuse has received a lot of attention lately in the news as it relates to sexual abuse in the church. And many churches within our own convention and fellowship have faced a great deal of scrutiny for the way that they have chosen to handle issues of sexual abuse. At times there has been a refusal to hand the one over to Satan. When a person is in the midst of unrepentant, grave sexual sin. And instead of skating over it and dealing, and, and dealing out very light penalties for it, what happens? Or what, I'm sorry, rather, we do skate over it and we do delve out light penalties for it. And what happens? Well, weeks later, months later, that person finds another church and then what, then what happens? They're, they're abusing other people because nobody treated it with any weight. Nobody treated it with any severity. Nobody treated it with any seriousness. All in the name of love. The saints, discipline is not just for the preservation of the transgressor. Discipline is for the preservation of the ones who have been transgressed. It's for the protection of those who have been transgressed against. Now, let me say this. And I know, not a happy sermon this morning, all right? Heavy sermon. But let me say this. I've said a whole lot about discipline. But I want you to hear what Paul says again in verse 5. I'm, I'm sorry, in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Your boasting is not good. Why is that important? Because there are two sides to boasting when it comes to discipline. There is the side of the boasting that's happening in Corinth where there is, hey, look at how merciful we are. Look at how free we are in Christ, look at how loving we are, that we aren't, you know, that we aren't, um, you know, really harsh and, and, and disciplining anybody or, 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 or exercising accountability. There's that kind of boasting. But then there's the boasting on the other side. And look at how much we, look at how much we hold the truth. Look at how firm we are with sin in our camp. Does that make sense? Where it becomes, so if you've ever watched, um, gladiator, then you know that there is rank sinfulness and idolatry and craziness and violence. And you look at it and you say, this is just reckless and crazy and what in the world is going on, right? And on one sense, that's true. But then there's another sense in which the church needs to pay attention to. You know, remember when Russell Crowe, in his fight, he goes and he has this brutal fight in the middle of the Colosseum. And then he He's victorious. People want him to take the, take the guy out, kill the guy. What does he do? He looks out to the crowd. He says, are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? 
Why am I saying that? Because sometimes I believe that the people that do exercise discipline are exercising it to be entertained. They are exercising it to say, hey, look at how holy I am by showing you how unholy he is. Look at how righteous we are by showing you how unrighteous this person is. Does that make sense? So your boasting is not good. Even when you are exercising discipline, it's why I keep going back and saying that discipline has to be right and good because there is a certain kind of discipline that does more harm to the church than it does good for the church. Let me show you a scripture to give you a point, I mean to, get, to make this point clear for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, he says this, Paul says this. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul is saying this. He's saying there's sometimes where you just get a kick out of watching people suffer and squirm. This man has already expressed remorse. This woman, this sister has already expressed remorse. They've sought your forgiveness. They're turning in the right direction. They want to do right. And so what, the, what should the church do? Embrace. Embrace. Because the goal is love. The goal is restoration. Does that make sense? Apart from that, we become what? Just like children. There's discipline, and then very on the fine line of discipline, there's what? Abuse. Does that make sense? And you can have a father or a mother who's like, hey, I'm just trying to teach them what is right. And they can be abusing that child. The same thing can happen, saints, to the church. If our not done to the end of love, and if our discipline is not done to the end of restoration, then our discipline becomes an act of abuse. And we need to be mindful of that and careful of that when we think about how we exercise discipline. One more thing about the a don't for discipline. And you find it in verse 9 through 12 of chapter 5. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater. I'm sorry, verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? <laughs> this discipline is for us. This discipline is not for the world. And I see too many times the church trying to apply standards to the world rather than applying it to the church. 
You're to care for the world, minister to the world, love the world, share bread with the world, eat with the world, fellowship with the world, go and hang out with the world. Go, and, and, when I'm, and when I say, when I'm saying the world, I'm talking about a friend, a person. You are to befriend someone who does not know Jesus and share your life with that person, right? Regardless of what their sin looks like. It's not about judging the world here. We're not judging the outsider here. We are exercising discipline to the outsider here. The discipline is for those of us on the inside who profess Jesus Christ as Lord. And confess to follow him with our heart and with our lives. That's where the discipline is for. Not for those that we're sharing the gospel with. If, if we want to put that standard on them, we'll never reach anybody. We'll never reach anybody. We'll never touch anybody. We'll never relate to anyone. We'll never share, share the gospel. And so we have to invest our lives in those who don't know Jesus. And not be ready at every drop of the dime to judge them. Does that make sense? Because they don't know Jesus. <laughs> what are you doing? When you judge people based, when you judge people that have no relationship with Jesus, you know what you're saying? You're saying that you can do this without them. You can live this life without them. That's why I'm judging you. And now what has crept in is self-righteousness rather than a righteousness that's found in the Son. No, your goal is to introduce them to Jesus and have them embrace Jesus. And sure, there are some things in which we want to ex help them exercise wisdom and make sound decisions. But folks, be careful on the judgments that you, um, that you display and that you exert. Because you're telling them that they can do it without him when you try to judge them without him. Are you tracking with that? All right. Last thing. Man, this has been some heavy stuff today. I'm glad we're feeding y'all this, this evening. Put some smiles on your faces after this. When you look at this text, Paul says this that, that I find striking, verse 7. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and of truth. Paul is basically saying to resist to exercise good and healthy church discipline is to ignore the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, the sacrifice of Jesus. Paul is saying it to 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 refuse and resist to exercise discipline and to exercise healthy church discipline is to ignore the festival, the union. And so we exercise discipline, believe it or not, to participate in the celebration of our union with Christ. We exercise discipline because, we're, because we are making a declaration that, that nothing matters more to us than being shaped and formed in the image and likeness of God. Nothing matters more to us than us growing in Jesus. 
growing in our union and growing in our fellowship with Jesus. Nothing matters more than, to, than for us to grow more and more intimate with his, with his death, burial, and resurrection, with his life. Nothing matters more to us. And so we will shed ourselves of the flesh world and the devil. We will pursue Christ, even at the cost of turning away from sin. Because nothing matters more to us than our relationship with him. And so discipline is a moment to exercise that. When we are locked in unrepentant sin and refusing to turn away, it is a moment to exercise that. And so, yes, this is hard. I know this was very hard teaching on this morning. I don't get up in the pulpit waking up excited to preach messages like this, all right? But this, this is yet another way in which our union, for Christ, union with Christ deepens. This is yet another way in which we are, we are moving into fellowship with him, deepening and being shaped and formed and molded into his image, into his likeness. And so when we do have to exercise this, may we, when we do have to do this, may we do it lovingly. And may we do it with the, with the desire to see restoration happen. Amen. And may we do it for his glory. Would you pray with me? God, we love you and we thank you.